a Podcast One production. Questions. Actor, writer, director Lee Wanell has been scaring the out of people for more than a decade now. His movie Saw is in the Guinness Book of Records as being part of the most successful horror franchise ever. His latest film's called Upgrade, and I caught up with him in Sydney in advance of its national release to ask Lee Wanell some big questions. Welcome to the big questions. How are you? Great. Morning after the night before your your debut, the Sydney Film Festival launch of Upgrade, which we'll get to in a second, but how was the night for you? It was good. I was very tired. Um, uh, flew in from Los Angeles yesterday. Boy, are my arms tired. Uh, sorry. Yep, you, you know I had to do it. Uh, it was great. I mean... I've seen the film now with a lot of audiences, so those nerves have gone away. The first, the first time you ever screen a film that you've made for an audience, uh, for me at least, it is uh, breathtakingly stressful. <laughs> it's very anxiety-inducing, and that's sort of gone away now, so I'm able to just enjoy it. Okay, well, we'll get to that eventually. I had a great time last night. We'll talk about that. I was sitting next to a couple who I think were on a date, which is an interesting How could you tell? Oh, they, they, were, they were affectionate early on, and then... <laughs> She, she got a bit scared and he was comforting. It was very, very sweet. I think, I think you might have brought two people together last night. Horror movies are good for that, I have to say, because if you, know, if you are on a date, you sit, you're sitting there, then it, all of a sudden they're grabbing your arm or Someone you're needs grabbing a your arm. Someone, Someone needs, a, needs a cuddle. Let's go back to your childhood. I've heard you credit uh, your mum and dad as significant formative influences on you. Tell, tell the listeners about growing up Lee Winnell. Can we, I, I'm not. I'm thinking of the musical track that's going to be playing here. Given sure. That, given that I grew up in the uh, outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, I'm gonna let's let's make it James Rain. Um, <laughs> uh, my dad worked in television. He worked at the ABC, Auntie, the AB, and so I sort of grew up uh, in this world that demystified television. You, you know, like a lot of people were, um, in awe of this magic box in their living room that broadcast images at them. But I would go to work with my dad and see that being made. Mm. It's like, this, I still have images in my mind of that, that classic eighties newsroom with the, you know, b- bleating rotary phones and just that layer of smoke, that mattress of smoke as every journalist in there with the phone wedged between their ear and their shoulder was stubbing one. And I mate, I got to get on the phone to Russell street. Now I can't wait P- stubbing out the cigarette and I'm sitting there in the corner, wide eyed, six years old. Like, Oh, it's fascinating. My, my daughters have come and watched me do a few shows. And once kids see television made, it is a, it's a little bit like them watching sausages made. At the butchery or something, isn't it? You all never want to eat a sausage again. At, at all, just the just the mystique drops on. They still love it, but they know that. Well, no, actually, there's clearly been some editing there, or yeah, of course they've talked in advance about the topics that might come up on the show or whatever. Just dem- dem- demystifies. It does. It demyst- It's like yeah, you step behind the curtain and see the uh, that the wizard is just a little man working controls. You know, <laughs> the sets for television are always strikingly small and crappy. You know, once you see the actual set of a of a newsroom, you're like, God. And so I really grew up with that. And and uh, my dad forced us, of course, because he worked for the ABC. We had to watch a lot of the ABC at home. All my school friends were watching, you know, the Ninja Turtles on Channel 10. And I was first to wa- forced to watch, like, you know, This Week in Soil, some BBC <laughs> show. Like, if you look here, you can see that this Watford soil is quite crumbly, isn't it? 
And I'm sitting there like, thanks, Dad. It's interesting because you said last night at the at the premiere that that uh, Terminator, Robocop, things like that inspired you as a kid. When you were, when most kids watch a movie, they think, wow, imagine being the actor in that movie. Imagine being the star. Did you think that as well? Or did you think, imagine making it? Imagine, when, when did that become what you thought about? It wasn't until later. I think, you know, it goes in stages, doesn't it? Because when you're a kid and you're watching movies, you think it just happens. <laughs> like there's a, there's a magic box that just uh, uh, makes movies appear. And then at a certain point, I think I was that person who was saying, I want to be the actor. I want to be speaking the lines, doing school plays and such. But it was a high school teacher. I think I was in about year nine. Uh, Greg Fields, shout out to Greg, still friends with him to this day. Is a media teacher at the esteemed educational facility Brandon Park Technical College, yeah. which has since closed down. BPTC. Um, <laughs> sorry, and uh, and Greg, Greg was a great. He was teaching media, and he showed the class probably a film he shouldn't have. He showed us Taxi Driver, and he also showed us Apocalypse Now. Well, by Taxi Driver in Year Nine. <laughs> yes, so you're year fourteen. Nine. I think I, I I might bring down the Victorian Education Department with this podcast you're, you're appearance. A, a room of fourteen year olds, and it's are you looking at me? <laughs> yes, are you looking at me? Yes, and 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 and, and we watched and, and we watched Apocalypse Now and Psycho, and I remember especially with Psycho, he was breaking it down into shots. And I'd only ever watched a movie, sit there, watch it, turn it off, go do something. He was actually hitting the pause button and saying, now why is he shooting this from up high? And a, a bunch of confused 14-year-olds are looking at each other and he starts explaining how cameras uh, can give a whole new feeling to a scene depending on where you shoot from. And this just exploded this Pandora's box in my mind of possibility. So I would say that was the formative moment in terms of oh, there's a whole life behind the camera. And I really became interested. That almost became more interesting than being in front of the camera. Just before we get to the sore phenomenon, we do have to give quick props. Of course, you're involved in, I think, one of the great ABC TV shows of the turn of the millennium, um, Recovery. Oh, yeah. Best job I ever had. I really? just didn't know it at the time. Yeah, okay. It was great. Yeah, it was the movie reviewer. <laughs> Wonderful show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was incredible. It was a bunch of people who had no experience in television and had no right to be on television, uh, doing a three-hour live show, completely live. I kind of lost count of the number of times, you know, the bassist from Magic Dirt would say the C word live on air at 9am on a Saturday morning and there's nothing that could be done about it. It was great because of the, the other, the, the, all commercial networks were also doing morning wake-up kids shows, but they were very sanitised and very sort of, cartoon connection type things and and there was a rawness about recovery and at at times clearly almost shambolic in a great way yeah i think so i mean bruce kane who was the um executive producer of the show and the sort of the driving creative force he hated that polished stuff you were talking about you know it's like uh you know grab one of the dado brothers you know stick him in a colorful shirt and then Put him in front of a camera of an, in front of a camera and make him talk about windsurfing. Yeah. That was that was that was commercial television's idea of a youth show, and he just wanted to make something chaotic. And I, in hindsight, it seems like he was very much deliberately steering it towards chaos because otherwise, why would he have hired a bunch of people who had no idea what they're doing? Yeah. 
And and you know, I certainly didn't. And and Dylan Lewis, who was the host, had never been in front of a camera before. And and also the the musicians we would have on, they would often go so far outside the lines of of what you would normally see on television. I still remember the time Public Enemies were singing. Uh, were in the middle of a song and they just stopped because they thought it, they didn't know it was live. And so they're just talking amongst themselves. And I remember Dylan came over and was like. In his way, he's like, we're on TV right now. And then there's Flavor Flav being like, what's that, man? <laughs> and like, that's the sort of thing you're talking about, that shambolic energy that Ang- I think Angus was Samson. Great. What was Angus Sampson's character called? The, uh, the Enforcer. The Enforcer. The Enforcer. <laughs> Who would just walk out in a, in a balaclava with chains around him and just stand menacingly over people for a while, break something and then walk uh, off. Yeah, he was sort of dressed like an executioner. And, and and was, was totally like a, one mute. Of the, he was like one of the bad characters in the wrestling. He was like he was. It was almost like the Antichrist version of Ozzy Ostrich. Yeah. You know, like if you if you take Hey Hey at Saturday, put it in a snow globe, shake it up, and just put Satan in there, you get recovery. And like it was it was it was a great time. I mean, you got to remember, I was at film school. I was nineteen years old, and my side job everybody else who's a student their job is like waiting tables or something i was interviewing jackie chan john woo samuel l jackson peter jackson like all of my heroes at that time now i'm I'm sitting in front of them and it was amazing um you know and more so in hindsight than i knew at the time but is there any part of you then that could have in your wildest dreams, predicted the, the the ride that would have been sore when it comes along. Take us inside that whole process. Where did where did the where did the movie come from? The original sore came from uh, really frustration. It was born out of frustration. So James Wan is someone I met at RMIT. He was a fellow student. We just bonded instantly because we loved Evil Dead. You know. Film school's a funny place because everybody there has aspirations to be the next, you know, Vim Vendors or, you know, they're, they're watching last year at Marion Bad and, and, and uh, Citizen Kane and, and talking about their contributions to cinema, whereas we just loved slasher movies. And so when we finished film school, we were like, we spent a few years kind of digging around, making little short films. And finally, probably five or six years after film school, we were like, let's just make something with our own money. That was really the key and, and and it was really the best thing we could have done was decide to fund something ourselves. And at that time, the Blair Witch Project and movies like that were coming out and you were sort of reading these stories of people spending $5,000 and maxing out their credit cards to make a movie. Of course, you only ever hear about the success stories. You don't hear about Joe Thomas who maxed out his credit card and is now you know, living on the street because his movie didn't go anywhere. But we we were so inspired by movies like that and so we decided, what's the cheapest thing we can pay for ourselves? Two people in one room. And I remember we took a long time to come up with a concept we liked. It's one thing to say, let's make a movie all set in one room. But what's going to happen? That's so restrictive that it's really hard to come up with a story. And after about a year, uh, James called me one day and he said, I've had this idea. I think it could be cool. It's two guys chained up in a, in a bathroom, like a public toilet. And there's a dead body in the middle of the room and and they find out that somebody's put them in this room like a serial killer and I'm listening to him talk on the phone and I hung up the phone and I was thinking yeah yeah and then I I kid you not I opened my diary at the time and I had written the word saw in like a blood heavy metal font <laughs> I had written it like it was the title for a movie and not to get too wishy-washy 
to Tony Robbins on you, but I, 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 um, just had this feeling from head to toe of like, that's it. And I called James back and I was like, that movie, that's going to be the movie we make. And it's going to be called Saw. And I remember James was like, oh, I don't know about that title, but, and I was like, no, 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 this is the title. And, um, one of the guys in the movie is going to cut off his foot. And it just, it just kind of just appeared and I started writing and I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never really written a screenplay before. So it took me a long time to get a first draft. You created a, a little mini movie as a pitch of it. Is that correct? Or Yeah. Well, we, I wrote the script first and it took me the better part of a year. I showed it to James. He was like, great, let's do it. And we were getting ready to shoot it ourselves. And our, our manager at the time, Stacey Testro, who's lurking back there somewhere, um, she said, no, let's, I don't think you guys should shoot this with your own money, I think we should go and try and find money, real money. And so I actually used the money I had saved up to make the whole movie. I'd saved up $7,000 somehow. And that was going to be the budget of the movie. The entire? Yes, that was going to be- Go to woe. Go to woe, catering. You can imagine what that movie would have been like. I used that $7,000 to make a short film. So we picked what we thought was the best scene in the script and we shot it. And, um, we used that, I guess, as like a, uh, a, um, a demo reel to go with the script. So instead of just handing someone a stack of paper, you're like, here's the script and here's what it will look like, which turned out to be the best decision we made, you know? And it's interesting. It's the people who love it. Some people say it's the greatest movie they've ever seen. Some say it changed the entire genre some people say it's it's C grade torture porn and it and it's it's horrid. Do you can you remember at the time was it was it instantly divisive and and impactful? I I remember it as being so, but maybe I only saw that in a timeline where it hits me more than it did you. Well, I the first saw film was received very well. We 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 showed it at Sundance, which is a notoriously fickle and indie festival, and the audience loved it and. Um, I remember critics, I wouldn't say it was just wall-to-wall love, but critics really responded to it, the kind of grimy indie nature of this movie. I think the C-grade torture porn aspect of it has been born out of the sequels. Right. The, they, I think the producers ended up making eight sequels. And the fact that you can't quote the exact number authoritatively says something about that whole... And I can tell you, Adam, I can be honest with you and say I haven't even seen them all. Right. And so what I think's happened is, and, and this happens with a lot of horror franchises, whether it's A Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, the sequels end up retroactively tainting that first movie. And so pe- people sort of um, fold all of the movies into one big movie. And so... It's an interesting feeling. On the one hand, I'm really proud of that first movie and I'm so thankful to that film that it got us where we are today. Um, But on the other hand, I realised that the producers who own the rights to the film, they can keep making sequels if they want. There's nothing you can do about it. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting experience. I mean, I grew up watching franchise horror movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th. So there is something kind of cool about the fact that the first movie James and I ever did became that type of thing for a new generation. Guinness Guinness Book of Records most successful horror franchise yep. ever. No successful. I still and I still get kids uh coming up to me um you know teenagers or people in their 20s who are like 
this is our Friday the 13th. This was this we grew up watching these movies at sleepovers. And I have memories of going to sleepovers when I was 13 years old and and having to act tough like I w- I could watch Hellraiser 3, but really being terrified. Yeah. And I realized that Saw is that for a whole new generation of people. So there's affection there, but I also think that um it's gotten a bad reputation through the diminishing returns of the sequels. I, I, I felt exactly the same about Police Academy Mission to Moscow. I mean, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? Like, Assignment Miami Beach was a high what? watermark, and then Moscow? They're just going to exploit that? There was a trend there also for a while with the uh, the big horror franchises to then do the crossover, you know, Freddy caught up with Jason. And, <laughs> yeah, right. and did you ever hear, you might have been out of the process by that stage, was there ever any suggestions to fuse Saw with other, you know, Freddy Krueger just pops into the bathroom <laughs> or anything like that? Then, no, not with Saw. Um, there was a whisper at one stage with the Insidious franchise, yes. another horror franchise that I inadvertently uh, created with James Wan, um, where there would be some crossover. I think it was floated for about five minutes. Right. And shot hey, down. Hey, let's, um, yeah, James and I pretty quickly shot it down. We were like, no, because then we'll have to live up. Once you do that, you make a promise to the audience that that's going to be a thing now that you have to live up to. But, um, yeah, people are becoming obsessed with cinematic universes now. It's not enough to make a movie or make a movie that's a sequel. Now it has to be a universe. It has to be like seven <laughs> disconnected characters that all appear in each other's movies. If the Lee Winnell of 2018 was making Saw, would we have pretty much the same process or were you, a, were you guys genuinely wet behind the ears? <laughs> Very wet behind the ears, soaking. Um, we, we really didn't know much, but I think our naivety helped us. I, I almost wouldn't, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't want to change anything because when you don't know the rules... You you try things, or you'll 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 do a lot more. I think I think there's a lot to be gained from naivety. If you look at any business, whether it's in tech or in the arts or whatever it is, the the people who who don't know what you're not supposed to do, I feel like they're the ones who come up with the best ideas. Um, they kind of um, kind of crash into the room and say, "Well, let's try this," and then. Then you learn the rules. Everybody's keen to tell you the rules and you can't unlearn them. It's interesting how I think that philosophy, I think that analysis applies across things not more broadly than the creative arts. My background of pure mathematics, they used to say that if if someone had not announced themselves to the world by the age of 40, then they won't. And it was because younger brilliant mathematicians would ask brilliantly stupid questions because they hadn't become siloed into one narrow niche area. And they just go, well, why don't we try this? Wow, and there's just insight in there that can eventually get beaten out of you after you just keep grinding away in a certain direction for decades. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's. I remember reading an, an article about Elon Musk recently and he was talking about getting into the car business. He had this idea of a fully electric car. And, of course, everybody who worked in the car industry who knew the rules, the, the rule makers were like, no, 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 you can't do that. And he, in his naivety, he was like, why not? Why not? And he just did it. And, and, and it was, it's, it's funny you say that because when I was reading that article, I, I was thinking, um, I'm as smart as Elon Musk. No, I was, I was reading, <laughs> I was reading that article and thinking that reminds uh, me of when I first got to LA, when James and I really didn't know the rules. And we were like, 
you know, why can't we make a movie this cheaply? Why can't James direct it having never done anything before? Why can't it be this? You know, it's we, we're, we're not changing the world the way someone like Elon Musk is, but we we didn't know the rules. And I think you're exactly right. And and, and we were we were 25 years old, as you said. I think now I'm at a point where I've worked behind the Iron Curtain long enough that the rules are weighing on my sho- shoulder. And sometimes I wish I could erase my memory of all that stuff and work from that purely naive place again. On the topic of erasing memory and being able to control the human <laughs> mind, you'd the, the jaded old gunslinger walks us seamlessly <laughs> into a, you've done this before, upgrade. So yep. now, now we, we, whereas the, the sort of statute of limitations on spoiler alerts for Saw, if you haven't <laughs> seen it now, we can tell you a guy loses a foot. Let's yep. keep very, very vague about upgrade because, you know, people are still going to go out and see it. But you said last night Terminator... Robocop, those sort of films. What was it about those movies that inspired you that that you thought you might try and catch the flavour of in this film? Well, I I love those movies and they were movies that I saw at that intense time when you really love things. No, no no one in the world loves anything more than a teenager does. They're always the most intense fans. So all the movies that I loved when I was a teenager, they're stuck uh, in my heart. I, I always go back to them. But the reason... I reference them particularly in Upgrade is, and 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 it's it's a good segue into the rule breaking thing because I I work with Blumhouse. Blumhouse is the company that's been very successful making low budget horror movies. They did Insidious. I had a good relationship with them. I wanted to see if I could use their model to make a big expansive sci fi movie, and of course the answer was the the logic was no, that can't be done. And I looked to films like the original Terminator. If you go back and watch that movie, it's really a low budget movie. It's really lean and mean. The special effect in that movie is Arnold Schwarzenegger walking around like, uh, I, you know, what's that first line? He says, your clothes, give them to me. And, uh, and, and you know, he, he is, you, you, you suspend your disbelief and you, and you accept at face value that he's a robot and all the work is done for you. It's a great sleight of hand. And so I was pointing to that movie and saying, we can do a big sci-fi movie if we're smart about it like these films were in the... In, uh, in the 80s. It's shot in Melbourne. I noticed a couple of times what I really did like. It's, it's futuristic and there's, and there's great visual cues sometimes to this you know, world of the future and they can be quite engaging. But there were a couple of times in the movie where you just did these big overhead sweeping shots at night time of Melbourne. And if you know Melbourne, you can spot, yeah, there's the, the Baldy Bridge and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. And there's no special effects laid over it at all. But it was something just about the music and the lighting made you think, Oh yeah, that's clearly a long time in the future. <laughs> it's clearly the future. Yeah. And but I had a look at it. Well, no, hold on, no, that's clearly just that's just a that's just a bit that's of peak out traffic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, 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 I found that really interesting. That whole you, you can you can give the sense of the future with some great high tech special effects, but sometimes just the right musical stab or just the lighting angle seduces you into thinking this is clearly 50, 80, 150 years from now. Yeah, it's, 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 you really don't need to go CGI crazy to achieve that. You know, you, you, you just don't. And um, that's why I thought the film could be made for that, for, for a lower price than something like, you know, The Avengers or something would where they throw hundreds of millions of dollars at it. And, and I think um, when we did use the CG, we just used it um, 
like to augment what we'd already shot, you know. And I, I wanted something very practical and tactile. And I didn't I didn't want it to feel like Blade Runner with the flying cars. I wanted it to feel like something that was just around the corner, you know, like this is our world 20 years from now. Bigger budget, large film, more pressure for you. Do you have this sense of, you know, could things could potentially go a, a lot more wrong, couldn't they, just by dint of the fact that there's more money involved? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was definitely pressure to stick the landing as they say uh, in America it's like it's uh it it it's what you need if you're going to do something ambitious you need time time is the best friend of filmmaking and we didn't have a huge amount of time so i definitely felt that pressure but the the best ally i had was the crew in australia australia just has insanely good technicians and artists the production designers here why and, is that i don't know i mean i've i've tried to think about it i think that um I think that these people, they, they, they get to practice on these big American films that come to Australia. So some big film like The Matrix will come to town and all these local technicians will work on it, but those movies aren't always around. And so between jobs, they work on independent Australian films. So I had an amazing crew. The, the Steadicam operator had worked on Fury Road. That was the last film he'd done. The, the, the lighting guy on the film had just done a film with um, Martin Scorsese, that film Silence. Oh, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I, I was like, <clears throat> bit of a step down, but I'll try to, you know, not embarrass myself. And, and that, that level of talent means that um, when you're in a jam, when, when time's running out and, and you, you have to get it in one or two takes, people with that level of skill and experience, they just do it. They, they can... Where do, where do you sit on the on the on the line, the personality rainbow of at one end, just obsessive micromanager, <laughs> people can't move a pencil on a table in a reshoot without you deciding, versus yeah, the, just let's all go, have, do whatever you want, we'll all get there. Where do you sit? What do your where do you sit on that, and how good are you at divesting responsibility for other people, or do you get really stressed if you don't have every finger on every pulse? <laughs> Um, my, the Venn diagram of, of my personality is like the two crossing over. I'm definitely, I definitely have a foot in the obsessive camp in terms of the pencil on the table. Like, no, that pencil has to be exactly there and we're going to do this. But what, what you have to do, I think on a film set is play a little bit of, you need to do a little bit of, um, psychology. Everybody needs to feel included. So I would never exert that control by force. Some directors pick up the megaphone and scream at everyone and say, everybody has to do exactly what I say. And I heard of directors doing that and I just don't think it's a good way to get the best out of a crew. I think for me, what I like to do is know where I want the pencil on the table, but but I'll bring everyone in and say, where do we think the pencil should be? And steer the answer to where I want it to be. There's, there's a way to do both. And, hotter, and colder. Hotter, colder, hotter, exactly. Hotter, nah. It might sound manipulative, but I think it's a way of getting the movie you want without alienating people or upsetting them. I want everyone to have a good time because, as the saying goes, you know, it's, it's not, it's not um, brain surgery. We're making a movie. It's supposed to be fun. You know. But also with any creative process like that, it will it will be as good as it can if everyone's working as hard as they possibly can. And yep. you have to create an environment, don't you, where people are willing to 
stay around for an extra half an hour when they've already done more than enough on something to take that from a nine and a half out of ten to a ten out of ten two-second thing that's going to end up in the final bit. And to have that a large number of people consistently wanting to work hard to do the best they can, there's a real human psychology in making that happen. Absolutely. I've never understood leadership through fear. I've never understood that concept of making everyone around you terrified, therefore somehow that'll make them better workers. It doesn't work. I mean, um, in my limited experience of what I do, if everyone's happier, the, everything just gets better. Everything gets better. The work gets better. The The amount of time they'll put into it. I mean, I remember um, being on set and the producers were saying, look, we've got this car and it's a, it's a classic car. It's a, a Dodge Charger or whatever it was and we can't crash it. Unfortunately, we don't have the money. Um, and I'm sitting there having this meeting with the producers and I'm looking over and the stunt coordinator, Chris Anderson, who's kind of a legendary figure in the... Australian stunt world. He worked on the first Mad Max, if that says anything. And uh, he's kind of giving me this weird look, like winking at me. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, what's going on here? So I listened to the producers give me their spiel. They finish, and I, 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 or I went up to Chris and I was like, what, what's going on? What, why are you winking at me? And he's like, I bought that car. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, the Charger, I bought it. We can do what we want with it. And I'm like, Chris, no. I can't live with, I can't let you buy the car. And he's like, don't worry about it, mate. I'll sell it. And it was just like, they just went the extra mile and I was so thankful to them. But I, I'd like to think um, that the reason they went the extra mile is because I treated them like human beings, included them, made sure they knew at all times how thankful I was. If I treat the stunt coordinator like crap, he's not going to, do things like that. Let alone buy a car. Let alone buy the car and let me crash. So it's, it's, it's just, I guess it's just my style. No matter how stressful it gets, you have to try. We're at that moment now where it's, we've had the, the premiere last night. You've seen it a few times in front of a few audiences. You're yet to get, you know, sometime very soon you're going to get that feedback. You're going to get those critics. Do you, are you nervous now? Do you, <laughs> do you care? Have you just done so much of this that it's out of your hands? Or is there something special about shot in Australia, bigger budget. Are you a bit edgy? I am a little bit. I mean, it feels like the first statement of me. The first film I directed was Insidious Chapter 3. is the third Insidious film. So it still felt very much part of what James did. This is like me out on my own. And, you know, everyone around me kept saying like, oh, what are you worried about? You know, you in pre-production, they'd be like, don't be nervous. Look at your track record, all the films you've made. And I'm like, yeah, that was when I was in the Beatles. How's the solo album going, Ringo? Like, how's Wings going to perform? And so I, I, I really felt like this was, you know, I'm, I'm going for Band on the Run here. I'm going for Wings. And, uh, and so I am a little bit nervous, but um, I do have to be a bit zen about reviews because, as the saying goes, you, don't, you, you know, you, you, you don't finish a movie, you abandon it. It's not yours anymore. You just leave it. And um, everyone else critics, audiences, everyone else in the world just tells you what they think of the of your film and there's nothing you can do about it. So I try not to get too stressed about bad reviews because you have to realise it's got nothing to do with you. But it has been well-reviewed in the US and it's been really, you know, um, great, kind of a good bonus prize. Somewhere down the line are you already planning upgrade 7.0, <laughs> Terminator, <laughs> Robocop, all coming together as one? The singularity? The singularity uh, is near. Um, 
No. I'm way too superstitious about filmmaking to start planning the sequels. I feel like that's an assumption of success that I don't want to mess with. That's bad voodoo. Um, so any thought that I've ever had of like, oh, yeah, that would be good for the sequel, I just push it out of my mind instantly. Um, and any these other movies I've written, like Saw and Insidious, that have been franchised and they've done sequels, none of them were planned that way. They were all made to be standalone films and it was almost out of our hands. So this movie is very much like that. It was just meant to be a single piece, beginning, middle, end. That's it. That's one story. Well, if the people I was sitting in between last night at the <laughs> premiere, the, the the couple on the date on one side mm-hmm. and the other side, two obsessive fanboys who were so excited that when you got up to say a few words at the beginning, I could hear their breathing <laughs> pick up a gear. If their reactions are anything to go by, you've got nothing to worry about with the reception for Upgrade. I think it's going to go all right. Okay. Oh, good. I'm going to hold you personally responsible if it doesn't. Um, well, that's good. I mean, yeah, I'm. I'm at this stage. I'm pretty zen about it all. So, if you want to see Lee Winnell's solo album, and if you want to find out what did or didn't happen to that Dodge Mustang something car, catch upgrade in cinemas around Australia. Lovely chatting with you, Lee Winnell. Thanks for having me. This is great. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.